Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. That's where we'll be at today. Today we begin our fifth week in a series of messages, which is building the foundation for us as a church as we ask the question, what's next? What's next for the body of Centerpoint? This fall will be 15 years old as a church in November. And so we've been asking the question. We're going to spend several months just seeking out God's heart and God's mind. For us as a church, what kind of ministries do you want to participate want us participating in as a church? And so we've been on this journey starting to try to understand that. For us to do that, we've been looking at the life of Jesus. That's the foundation we want laid. We want to be reminded, what does Jesus say? What is Jesus' purpose? What is Jesus' passion? What's his priorities? So that we as a church, as we have discussions and we dream together, as we think about ministry, we're always going back and going, How's that? how are we doing in comparison to Jesus? Because he's the standard that we want to hold ourselves up to. And so that's what we've been doing the last four weeks. Week number one, we tackled the kingdom of God and talked about what does it mean to be the kingdom of God? What is the kingdom of God? Week number two, we discovered Jesus the evangelist and how Jesus went into communities, how Jesus went out and sharing the message of, of salvation. Week three, we unpacked the idea of Jesus being a disciple maker, that once people come to Christ, then they're to grow in Christ. And that becomes our mission as well. Last week, we talked about Jesus being a great leader. Today, we want to look at this idea of Jesus transforming communities. How does Jesus transform communities, and what did Jesus do that we can look at and say, ooh, that needs to be what we need to be doing to model and follow his example? Now, I want to remind you about a very important gathering that we're having on April 14th that goes along with all this, asking a question, what's next? It's called Dreams Unlimited. And we need your family to sign up. We're going to have childcare here for people with kids. We're going to have a meal together. We'll all eat together. And then kids will go to their areas. Adults will uh, gather together. And we're going to spend just an evening of dreaming together, just asking a question, what if... What could we do? God, what do you want us to do? God, where do you want us to go? We'll spend some time dreaming and gathering some information together as we just dream about what God wants us to do as a church. So you're invited. Whether you're a member, whether you're saying, I'm on that journey, I'm still kind of investigating, this is going to be my church, not be my church. Rather, rather, this is your first Sunday. This may be your first Sunday here. We'd love to have you join us. Come think with us about what we could do together to impact a, king, impact, a, impact a community together. Right now, our Next Steps team and our leaders are what, what's known as, we're, we're calling it a discovery phase. We've been discovering the ministry according to Jesus' way. We've been discovering things about our community as we investigate and try to understand the community that we're in. This community is changing a lot and has been changing pretty dramatically over the last five and ten years. Then on that night, April 14th, we're going to launch what we call the dream phase where we start dreaming together because we want to ask God, God, what, what could we do? And we just want to dream big and, and have big dreams. And you're needed for this phase. So important that we get as many voices as possible from our church. And then the third phase will be design phase, which that will take place over the summer. Once we kind of hone in on some ministries where we feel like God's leading us, we're going to design and say, okay, what's that going to look like? How's that going to function in our community? How's it going to function within our church? And then we'll go in the deploy phase, which will be this fall. Some people say, well, when this fall? Well, I don't know yet. Because we're seeking the Spirit's direction, and so as He leads us and guides us, we'll have dates of when everything is going to kind of launch, and then as we go into 2020 and 2021 and 2022, here's what our ministry is going to be looking like, and here's going to be some emphasis of our ministry. Today, I want us to consider the idea that Jesus transformed communities. How did He do that? 
See, if we want to be effective channels of good news, we need to ask God to give us a heart that Jesus had for lost and hurting people. See, if we're going to make a difference in our community, it starts with us having a heart that when we look at our community, we see our community the same way Jesus saw people. We see his heart in Matthew 9.36 when it says he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he goes on and says the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And he says the disciples should pray to send workers out into the harvest The great preacher C.H. Spurgeon said that verse 38 weighed on his heart more than any other text in the Bible. He said that it haunted him perpetually, that the harvest is so plentiful that people are needed to interact and to reach the harvest. I pray that this simple message today will haunt you. I pray it'll haunt you. I pray it'll haunt me. I pray it'll haunt us as a church that we will dwell on this message today and go, God, where do I fit in that? God, how am I doing when it comes to this passage of Scripture? See, we need to see as Jesus saw, we need to feel as he felt, and we need to do as he did. In Matthew 9, we see a summary of Jesus' ministry at that time. Verse 35 says, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. So there's the ministry of Jesus and what he was doing, teaching, proclaiming good news, healing people. And then in verse 36, he tells us he had compassion on crowds, and we begin to see or we begin to learn how we can be part of transforming communities because this is what Jesus did. And so I want us just to kind of unpack and undraw, draw out a couple lessons, so to speak, of what Jesus did to transfer a community. First of all, I got to tell you, we must see as Jesus sees. Have you ever prayed a prayer kind of like this? Lord, help me to see people the way you see people. Lord, help me to see the community the way you see the community. Lord, help me to see my neighbor the way you see a na- my neighbor. Lord, help me see my wife the way you see my wife. Lord, help me see my husband the way you see my husband. Lord, help me see my kids the way you see my kids. Lord, help me see the waiter, the waitress I'll interact with today with your eyes. Help me to see the clerk at the gas station or the teller at the bank. Help me to see people the way you... You ever pray that kind of prayer? That's where it starts at. We start praying, Lord, help me to see this world the way you see people. See, Jesus saw the great need of lost people. And and probably there was nothing unusual about this crowd that approached Jesus and the disciples that day. You know, there may have been a few more sick people or maybe a few more disabled people because the word was spreading that Jesus was dealing healings and, and that people were coming. So the crowd may have been slightly bigger, but the disciples probably thought, man, we are so tired of these crowds as they did on another occasion, just like in Matthew 14, when they said, send them away. The crowds were so big and they were getting so tired of doing ministry. And they're like, get them away. And Jesus is no, like, let them come. Or just like with the little children, when the children came to Jesus and the disciples were like, get these kids out of here. And Jesus was like, no, 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 no. You let the little children come because Jesus saw people differently than we did and he had compassion on them. Had great compassion. Some years ago, some researchers decided to find out as seminary students, those who are studying to get their doctorate in ministry, if they really had a heart of being good Samaritans. 
And so they brought in 40 seminary students into the office, one at a time, and they had a discussion with them and talked to them and said, okay, we have a project for you. This has to do with you getting your doctorate. And what we need you to do is we need you to leave this office, go next door, the building next door, go to so-and-so room. And when you go in here, you're going to record a message that has to do with the good, being a good Samaritan. And so we want you to leave right now and go do that. What they didn't know was that those who were doing this interview had planted somebody as an actor along the sidewalk who was sick and who was struggling with some health issues and playing that kind of role. And so those students left out of that office, went marching down the sidewalk to go down to do the recording, and they wanted to test and see what would those students do. Would they stop and be a good Samaritan? As they're going to go talk about being a good Samaritan, they're going to go on. This really took place. Over half of them walked right on by this person. Didn't even stop. Don't know if they really even saw him. They just kind of continued marching right on. I got a task to do. I got to get there. I got to go take care of this because this is part of my assignment, part of my duties in order to get this doctorate degree that I am working on. Now, you would stop and hear that, and you're probably thinking the same thing I thought. How could they be so cold-hearted? How could they not stop? You see someone as you're going down a sidewalk who's sitting along the edge and they're sick and they're not looking well, and how would you not stop and go, hey, can I help you? Hey, do you need an extra hand? And, and, you, and you kind of think, I would never do that. I would surely stop. I would surely check in on them. But I think those seminary students probably represent most of us. They were so preoccupied with life so full of what their assignment was, so filled with the pressure of what was going on that they didn't even stop to talk. They were thinking about, I've got to get this assignment finished. And so they just went on and they didn't even maybe see the sick or struggling person along the sidewalk. They didn't stop to see as Jesus would see. How did Jesus see people? Jesus saw people as harassed, the scripture says. He said, what does that mean? Because we think about the word harass, you think someone's harassing me, they're giving me a, a hard time. Well, the word harass means troubled or vexed. It points to the load of problems that people apart from Christ carry. It points to people who are trying to make it through life on their own, and they're so burdened, and they're so overwhelmed, they're so worried that they're just cast down, that they're really struggling. Let me ask you, do you ever stop and just carefully look in the eyes of people? You ever slow down enough to look and say, man, I wonder what's going on in their life. I wonder why they're walking. Why do they think this? Why do they say that? Do you ever stop and just look at people where you try to look through their eyes that you try to see what's going on in their life? That's what Jesus does. He, he looks deeply inside, and if we were to do that, we would see a lot more people that are, that are distressed. We'd see a lot more people that are troubled, a lot more people that are worried, a lot more people that are heavy burdened. Jesus saw lost people as harassed and helpless. The word means, helpless means downcast or, or, or thrown down. It points to utterly helpless, forsaken condition of people who are lost in sin without a Savior. And he knew that. And he's like, they are helpless because they are not saved. And Philip Keller, in his book, A Shepherd's Look at Psalm 23, describes how sheep can get turned over on their backs and not be able to get up by themselves again. Now, i got to be honest with you. I've never come upon a sheep laying like that because I've never been around sheep much. I grew up just outside of Detroit. We saw a lot of black top and pavement. But if you've grown up around sheep, you've probably seen this before. And if you've grown up around sheep, you'd be well aware that sheep, this one sheep's destiny is death. 
See, we look at that animal right there, and we think, get up. Sheep can't get up by itself. Now, if that's my little dog, he bounces right up. He'll lay back down and bounces right up, lay back down, bounce right back up. He'll do it over and over and over and over and over and over and over throughout the day. Not that critter right there. That sheep right there is on the path to death. What happens is a sheep will fall over and lie on its back or its side and flail its legs trying to get up, but they can't do it by themselves. Impossible. Matter of fact, I, I shared that with somebody and someone said, yeah, I worked on a, a sheep farm for a year and I know that experience where we had to actually help them get back to their feet. If not, they lay there. Within a few hours or a day, they'll die or some other animal will come under attack and eat them. This left in condition, this sheep is helpless and vulnerable to their enemies and they will die a slow, torturous death. What a picture of sinners who are apart from the good shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what's all around us, church. People who don't know Christ. Now, they may look good on the outside. Outwardly, they may look calm and comfortable. Actually, you look at the sheep and think, hey, he's kind of chilling. He's going to fall asleep. He's going to take a nap. Maybe he looks okay, but he's not okay. They may be successful in worldly terms, but Jesus sees their heart before God. Their legs are up unable to extricate themselves from their sin. They're downcast. They're dispirited. They may look normal outwardly, but inwardly they are, as Paul describes them, without hope and without God in the world. Struggling. Jesus says, I'm the shepherd. We're to be part of that process, helping them get their feet back underneath them, so to speak. Jesus saw lost people as sheep without a shepherd. The Jewish religious leaders should have been shepherding these people. That was their job. People point, it was their job to point people to God. But instead, they were self-righteous and the Jew, Jewish religious leaders were self-seeking. They were looking down on the common people as sinners. They were looking down and saying, I can't believe you do that. I can't believe you participate in that. How can you ignore God's law here? They were very judgmental in their approach. They were fleecing the flock, not shepherding them with compassion. They viewed people as a bother, as a nuisance, as annoying, as time wasters. When Jesus viewed sheep as people who are needing a shepherd, how do we view people? You get up and go to work tomorrow? Co-worker, maybe it's kind of a struggle. What's your viewpoint towards them? For those who are walking into schools, well, it won't be this week, they're on spring break, but when you go back in your school and you see your teachers or you see your friends, how, how do you view people? That's what Jesus viewed people, as people who needed help, who needed care, who needed love. Years ago, there was a heart-rendering story in the news of a young father, his name was James Lee. He shot himself in a tavern phone booth. You know the stories years ago because some of you go, I've never even seen a phone booth. True story, though. Minutes before he had called a reporter and told him that he had sent the paper an envelope outlining his story. And the frantic reporter tried to trace the call and find out, well, how can we get him help before he takes his life? But he was too late. When the police arrived, there James Lee lay hunched over in the phone booth because he put a bullet in his head. In his pocket was a child's crayon drawing. It was very folded and very worn out. On it was written, please leave in my coat pocket. I want to have it buried with me. The drawing was signed in a childish print by the man's daughter, Shirley, who had died in a fire five months before. 
And the father had been so grief-stricken that he had asked total strangers to attend his daughter's funeral so she would have a, a nice service. And you say, well, what about the family? And he said there was no family to attend since Shirley's mother had died when she was two, and they didn't have a lot of family around. And so he called a reporter just before he took his life, and Lee said that all he had in life was gone, and so he felt so alone, and he had no hope. See, when you hear a heartbreaking story like that, many times what leaps inside of us is, oh my goodness, I would have reached out to that person. I would have cared for that person. I would have been there for that person. I would have helped that person, that hurting man, or if it's a friend or something, when we see them go through struggles, go, I would have done something. And we would have if we've known. But here's the truth is hurting people don't wear a neon blinking sign that says, love me, I need help. We close it all in. We hide it all. We don't necessarily go and shout it out to the world. You know, the truth is we probably have some people that walked into this service today that you're hurting. You're going, I, I hope somebody at this church will love me. I hope I get a touch from Jesus. I know we had somebody first service that was just walking through some really tough stuff. And we were able to have that lady go and share with our prayer team. Our prayer team spent a good part of the first service just praying with her. And she's walking through stuff of life. You know, you have hurting neighbors, you have hurting coworkers, maybe a hurting schoolmate, maybe it's a hurting teacher, maybe it's a hurting person you're going to interact with today as a, you go out to lunch, maybe it's a, as you go shopping this week. There are people around us every single day who are hurting and who are struggling and are downcast and they're burdened and, and they just need someone who will stop and who will see them, who will look past just what they look like, will look deep into their heart, look into their soul, so to speak, and who will see them as harassed and helpless and distressed and dispirited. And I get a stance then to step in her life and be the hands and feet of Jesus. Are your eyes open? That's how Jesus saw the communities, and that's why communities were transformed. Jesus also saw the great harvest of lost people. He said the harvest is plentiful. This was an important concept that Jesus wanted his disciples to grasp, that there was a ton of need. On another occasion, after speaking to the Samaritan woman by the well, Jesus told his disciples in John chapter 4, lift up your eyes and look on the fields. They are white for harvest. In other words, look at all these people out here who are ready to hear a message of hope who are ready to understand and know salvation. He repeated it again when he sent out the 70 for ministry, when he said the harvest is plentiful. He told Paul, who was fearful, the apostle Paul, who was fearful to go into Corinth preaching, explaining, for I have, I have many people in this city. In Acts chapter 18, when Paul's entering Corinth, I have many people in this city who are ready to hear the gospel message that you carry, Paul. And I think that could be said to us today. I have many people right here just within a few mile radius of the church. They're ready, center point. They're ready for us to open our mouths. I have many people right in the neighborhood where you live. Maybe you live in Georgetown. Maybe you live in Nicholasville. Maybe you live right here in Lexington. Maybe you live on the other side of Lexington. I have many people right here. I have many people right inside the apartment complex. Maybe you're planted there. I have many people who are ready. The harvest is plentiful. That's what he said. And a harvest doesn't depend upon our techniques, but it's on God's sovereign purpose, his plan, what he has put together. We practically deny the truth of Jesus 
Jesus' words, whenever we think, and, and I'm guilty of this, when we think, oh, I don't know, he wouldn't hear about Christ. Oh, if I say something to her, I'm really going to offend her. If I bring up religion or bring up Jesus, I, I better not. We basically are telling Jesus, I don't really believe. That's what we're saying. When I don't speak up and tell something about Jesus and I start having excuses, we're really saying, I don't know if I really believe in your message because what we speak about is what we really believe in. Boy, there's a lot of people in this city who believe in those cats, don't they? They're awful vocal about it. Could you imagine if State Street had couches being burnt because people were coming to Jesus? Would that be different? That there was a revival going on and people were like, this is so excited. Man, that church had 20 salvations. That church had 100 salvations. That church, and the churches are exploding everywhere. And cops can't stop us because we're burning couches because we're partying. Could you imagine? Boy, we can get off excited for cats, for basketball. And, and I encourage you, get excited this afternoon. What about the excitement being carried over to people who don't know Jesus, that we're willing to speak up and tell people about Jesus, that they would get to know Jesus Christ. The harvest is plentiful. It's our job. It's God's job to open the hearts of the gospel, but it's our job to go. It's our job to go. He does the heart opening. He does that work, but it's our job to go. And so he saw the great, the great need of lost people. He saw this great harvest. And then he saw a great need for workers. He said the workers are few. It's interesting. Jesus changes the metaphor here. First he used the metaphor of sheep, but now it's a harvest. And the two metaphors show two sides of this matter. The sheep and the shepherd shows man's need met by God. The good shepherd seeks out lost sheep and he ministers to them. And so man's need is met by God. But the harvest and the workers show God's need met by man. Wait a minute, God has needs? Yep. And we can meet some of his needs? Yep. Because we're in a relationship. And he says, listen, this is what I need you to do. And God uses saved people to save other people. So when you come to Jesus Christ and, and you accept Jesus Christ, your Savior, then he says, now it's your job to help other people come to know Jesus Christ. Jesus' viewpoint is that of a farmer who has a great crop ready for the harvest but doesn't have enough reapers. Could you imagine standing over a field like that before you and going, I got to bring all that in? I got to do it by myself or do it with just a few? See, that's what the picture is, that I'm standing over this field. He's like, listen, it's ready the harvest is ready. It's time to harvest the field. Do we have the workers? On one hand, the Lord will accomplish all of his purpose, which includes salvation of souls. Yet at the same time, he has chosen to save lost people through those who, through who he's already saved. I mean, he could have chose some other path. I think he could have chose the angels. And quite honestly, the angels probably would have been more competent and more willing. Because we as humans sometimes really struggle in this area. I mean, he could have chose many different ways to bring people to himself, but he chose you and me. In one sense, that's overwhelming. And in one sense, it's like, wow, I'm that important? And he wants me to carry the gospel message, this message of salvation? I mean, what a responsibility, but what a blessing that we have as well. He chose us. And so the plentiful harvest means that there is a need for workers. Here's the real kicker. 
Here's the real figure. If you're one of Jesus' sheep, he wants you to see yourself as a worker in his harvest. Wait, I'm a sheep and I get to work. It doesn't exactly go together. It's not exactly the picture we would envision. It's not by accident that the very next thing in Matthew's gospel is for Jesus to summon the 12 and appoint them to ministry. And up to this point, Jesus has done all the ministry while the disciples have watched. But now he gets his disciples involved. He's like, listen, you have some work to do. And if you're thinking, but I'm not called into full-time ministry, then we don't understand this passage. It wasn't about full-time ministry. The workers of the Lord's harvest are not just so the, the, the so-called called ones or, or the paid professionals. Rather, they are the ones who have tasted God's salvation, who understand what it means to be saved by God, who understand their soul has been rescued, and they go, it's God has changed my life, and so I want to help somebody else change their life. Many people have said it. It's often it's one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. If we were starving today, if we had a food shortage would we not help each other and say, hey, here's where some food is you can go. Here's how you can be fed. Here's how you can take care of the problem you're having. Trust me, I know it's happening. My wife has family that lives in Nebraska that's been ravaged by the floods. Those families have come together and they're sharing together. Are you okay? Are you okay? Do you have all the needs? Do you have food? Is your family taken care of? They're sharing one to another how to make it through this rough spot of life right now. That's what we're supposed to do with the message of Jesus Christ. Do you know Jesus? Do you know Jesus? Are you okay with Jesus? Are you walking with Jesus? Are you ready for eternity? Are you ready for eternity? We're good. We're okay, I want to make sure you're all good. We're all helping each other. But what do we do many times? I can't talk about Jesus. And we get fearful. We button our lip. The harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. So we need to pray for workers. So to be like our Savior, we need to see as Jesus saw we need to see the great need of lost people. We need to see the harvest. We need to see the great need for more workers. And then we need to feel as Jesus felt. See, we usually don't move until we feel something inside of us. Note the, the link in verse 36. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them. The Greek word translated felt compassion is used frequently of Jesus in the gospel. It is related to a noun meaning inward parts, or as we might say it in the vernacular, down in your gut. You ever just have a feeling down in your gut that you're like, oh, I got to do something? Or have a pain down in your gut like, oh, I feel so much pain for somebody because of what they're walking through. That's what was going on. Jesus just, just down in his gut, he just had that feeling of compassion for somebody because they were walking in pain or difficulty or suffering or they were without him. And he didn't angrily blame them for the mess that they're in, although he could have done so. He could have said, hey, listen, your, your life is so messed up because you're addicted. Oh, your life is so messed up because you're sleeping around. Oh, your life is so messed up because you're ignoring my laws. But he didn't do that. Sometimes that's what we do. We put on judgmental glasses and go, well, you're in pain and suffering. Your finances are all messed up because of da-da-da. Or you're in pain and suffering and you're sick in the hospital because of. Jesus had compassion. He said, man, they're broken. They're hurting. He was so moved down inside. He had compassion with them. Do we feel compassion for sinners? Or do we just shrug and think, hey, it's their fault. Sorry, Charlie. You're in this mess. Or do we have compassion for people? I read about a, a bold pastor who began his sermon one time. He said, I'd like to make three points today. First, there are millions of people around the world who are going to hell. 
That's true today. He said, second, most of us sitting here today don't give a damn about that. And he made a long pause. After a long pause, he continued and said, my third point is that you are more concerned that I, your pastor, would say the word damn than you are about millions of people going to hell. Tricky way of showing how he was so worked up about the trivial and indifferent to the significant. What are we concerned about, church? We get sometimes so sidetracked about the things that we're concerned about, about how we're doing this ministry or that ministry or this thing or that thing, when we should be concerned about those who are dying and don't know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. We should feel as Jesus felt about lost people. Lady missionary went to Tunis in North Africa where she tried to reach Muslims for Christ. And as many missionaries have experienced, when you go into Muslim countries and the Muslim areas, the work is so hard and so treacherous that many people don't even report bringing even one person to Christ because the Muslims are so strong in their faith there. She went there teaching English. She had a young student who would come every single week for several years, and she was teaching this young man English, teaching year after year English. And uh, as he got closer to his time of, of going to college, the summer before, he finally came to her and said, listen, I think I'm done uh, with the English classes. As she went through those years, she would continually try to introduce him to Jesus and present Jesus and show the love of Jesus. And he had a very close spirit, continually just closed off to the gospel. Not in a mean way, not in an antagonistic way, but just, I'm not interested. I just need to learn English. And so he would shut down that conversation, not interact in that conversation, just let it be. Well, he took that summer off before he was going to go to college from his time with the missionary, and he hadn't seen the missionary of summer. He wanted to go and say goodbye as he was going to be taken off to the big university. He went to see her one more time. He sat down with tea and had a chance to catch up with the summer activities, share life together. She starts talking to him about Jesus. She wants him to come to Jesus, and so she's doing everything she can. She knows this is probably the last time I'm going to see this young man. I want him to know Jesus. I want him to receive Jesus. And again, in a kind way, he just kind of said, I'm not interested. I'm not interested. Thank you for teaching me English. I'm going off to college now. He gets up to leave. He starts to wander on down the path out the way, and before he gets down the end of the driveway, he turns around and looks back at the missionary, and she just has streams of tears just rolling down her face just rolling down her face. And he looks at her, and he turns and walks back up the path and says, let's talk a little bit more. That led them a longer conversation where eventually in that room in the house, he came to Jesus Christ. What was the turning point? He saw her compassion. He saw her heart. He saw that she really cared. She wasn't there just to do a task. She really cared about him. She saw that uh, he saw that what she was sharing was not just some pie-in-the-sky idea. It was really life-altering and life-changing. See, if people know how much you care and if they can feel how much you love, they'll be much more inclined to listen to our message. Do we take the time? Or are we kind of like the seminary students who just kind of went buzzing right on by? See, when we go buzzing right on by people, we don't take the time to care. They don't want to hear our message. We need to see people, the needy people. Jesus saw them, and he had compassion on them. And then we need to do as Jesus did. What did he do? He ministered to people's needs. Jesus ministered to people's spiritual and physical needs, 
as he prayed for more workers, Jesus is not uh, ministry and what Jesus did is not some stained glass world that applies to only those who are called into professional Christian work. It's not what it's about. Ministry means service. It means I will go out and serve somebody. Every Christian is called to serve Christ. He has given you unique gifts and unique opportunities. You are to take what he has given you and use it to serve those whom he has put you in contact with. That's what we're supposed to be doing, church. Matthew summarizes Jesus' ministry by three things in verse 35. He said he was teaching, says he proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom, and he healed every kind of disease and sickness. Not everyone is gifted to teach publicly. Not everybody in this room would get up and say, okay, Brian, I'm going to do what you do. Some of you could do this as well, if not better than I do. But in private conversation, you should be able to teach others what God has taught you from his word. You should be able to speak up and show the gospel or share the gospel with somebody else. If your friend makes a comment about God or Jesus that you know that doesn't align with Scripture or they're talking about eternity, like that doesn't make sense, you could take that opportunity and you could ask the question, why do you think that way? Or where did you learn that from? You could ask them, do you mind if I show you what the Bible says to what you just spoke about? We should be able to do that and we could then teach somebody. We could serve somebody by teaching. See, not everyone's called to preach the gospel publicly. However, 1 Peter 3.15 tells us that you should always be ready to give an answer for the hope that you have in Christ Jesus. Always be ready. We must be ready to share when the opportunity presents itself to tell others how their sins can be forgiven, to tell others how they reconnect with God, to tell others about reconciliation, to tell others about how they can spend eternity in heaven with God. Here's the simple message, and all of us can memorize this. The simple message is this, all have sinned. Every single one of us has sinned against the holy God, and we deserve punishment. Romans, Romans tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all know that. Say, so why do we know that? Because we're sinners. We look at our own lives and we go, yep, I'm guilty. I've sinned. I've fallen short. And no amount of good works can pay our debt. This is the gospel message. No amount of works. I mean, I can try to be really good. I can try to go to church a bunch of time. I can try to serve people. But no amount of good is going to pay the debt. But in love, God sent his son, Jesus, to pay the penalty that we deserved. What penalty we deserve? We deserve a penalty that's separated from God. But God sent us Jesus to pay that penalty. And we must turn from our sin and then trust in Jesus as the one who takes away our sin. We put our trust in him. And God gives eternal life, and that's a free gift of salvation. Something that we can't go and just try to earn or buy. Every single one of us can learn those five basic points, if he would catch up to me. Are you with me? There they are. We can all learn those five basic points. We can, every single one of us can memorize those points. Now, you, you get those down, you may say, well, let me put a few verses with that, some illustrations of that, but... You can underline some verses in your Bible that teach those exact same things. You could put those, mark them in your phone, and we can all learn how to share that kind of message and allow that to be a conversation starter. Allow that to be a point where we start a discussion with a friend or someone who needs to know Jesus, and then you take it further as the Spirit guides and directs us how to do that. And Jesus healed the sick, which authenticated his claim to be the promised Messiah. So he, he spent time preaching and teaching and sharing. Now, we probably say, well, I can't heal like Jesus healed. I don't know if I've ever healed anybody. You can pray for people. You can minister to their hurts. You can minister to their needs. We can meet their physical needs in practical ways. We can surely pray with people, and you may pray with people, and maybe God will do a miracle through you, and you go, wow, I 
just helps you come to a healing. But Jesus met the needs of people, and then he prayed for more workers. Maybe you're thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute. The text doesn't say he prayed for more workers. Look at the verse. He told the disciples, you pray for more workers. That's true. This text doesn't say it. But Jesus didn't command his disciples to do something that he didn't do. If you look at Luke 6, it tells us just before Jesus called the 12 apostles, he spent the entire night in prayer. What do you think he was doing that night before? I'm sure he was talking with his dad. Dad, who am I supposed to ask to come be workers? Who am I supposed to ask to become the disciples, become the first ones to help carry the message forward? Who are these people? Dad, give me their names. I'm praying. I'm asking for your guidance. What's he praying about? He's praying for workers. I believe he's asking the Father for that. And Whether he prayed for more workers or not, you cannot dispute that he commands us to pray for more workers. Is that part of your prayer life? When's the last time you prayed? Lord, raise up some people out of center point. God, raise up some missionaries. God, raise up some church planners. God, raise up some new preachers. Raise up some new youth ministers. Raise up some new worship leaders. God, raise up some people who will go into the soup kitchens. God, raise up some people who will teach your gospel. God, raise up some people. Who, when's the last time we prayed that? See, as we go on this journey together, and we're asking God, God, what's next for the body of Centerpoint? Here's the thing. We're going to uncover and we're going to discover some, some very direct areas where God says, here's some land to take. Here's some areas to go to carry my message. You know what the stopping point's probably going to be? People. Workers. And so we need to start now, church, praying, Lord, will you raise up workers? So when he shows us, here's where I want Centerpoint to go, here's some ministries I want you to participate in, and we're praying right now for workers, that all of a sudden these ministries will just explode and birth, and we'll have workers who are ready to go and say, that's me, that's me, I'm jumping in, I'm jumping in, I've got my spot, I'm ready to go. Pray for more workers, people who want to serve. Wouldn't it be a unique problem? If we had so many workers, we couldn't give everybody a spot to serve. Well, that would be a story worth writing about. But most churches are begging for workers, begging for helpers. And right now, Centerpoint, I can't tell you we're begging, but we have needs every single week. We have needs week in and week out. We have needs Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, throughout the week where there are ministry opportunities. We need to pray for workers. I think my friend Brad Rhodes, who's the founder of Grace Marriage, summarized this entire passage and this entire message in one statement that he made to me on on the phone about a week ago. I don't even know how we got exactly talking about this, but we were talking about loving people, and he made this statement to me. He said, Brian, our job as Christians is to love whoever is in front of you and love them well. Stop and think about that. Is that what Jesus did? Jesus took the time to love whoever was in front of him and love him well. The disciples were like, get this crowd out of here. Get these kids out of here. And Jesus was like, no, let these, let these people come. Oh, you're sick? I'm gonna, I, I'll heal you. Oh, you need to hear the gospel? I'll, I'll share the gospel with you. Oh, you need time to me sit with you? I'll sit with you. Oh, you need to sit by the well and talk with you? I'll talk with you. Whatever it was, where people were in front of him, what did Jesus do? He loved them well. That statement was spoke to me on the phone. I was like, I got to write that down. I got to write that down. I haven't, been, I haven't been able to get that off of my mind. I wonder if it's just been on my mind for the last week for this and also for me to think forward. So today when you go out to lunch and the waiter or waitress is serving you and your food's not coming out, do we get grumbly and complaining or do we go, nope, I'm going to love this waiter or waitress. I'm going to love them well. 
I'm going to even love the cooks because I don't know what's going on in the kitchen in the background. I'm going to take time just to care about them. Maybe I'm going to write them a note. Thank you for cooking my meal today. Or when you go home today and your spouse is driving you crazy and you don't know why they're driving you crazy or your kids are driving you crazy, what are you going to do? You're going to freak out on all that? You're going to, no, 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 slow down. I need to love them and love them well. They're right in front of me. Or today when your cats are up and then they're down and whatever's going on, those referees... People that are in front of us, we have an opportunity to love them and love them well. That's what Jesus wants us to do. If we're going to transform a community like Jesus did, we'll love whoever's in front of us. Whoever God plaps right in front of our day, right in front of our face in this day, we'll love them and we'll love them well. We'll say, Jesus, help me see that person the way you see them. Help me to feel for them the way you feel for them. And then we'll do as Jesus did.